We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Joining us today on Encountering Silence is the Reverend Philip Roderick. Philip is a priest of the Church of England. He has worked as a university chaplain, an educator, and a writer. He is the author of Beloved, Henry Nowen in Conversation, and he has produced Sacred Posture, a DVD on embodied prayer, and Sheer Sound, a CD featuring percussion performed on the evocative hang drum. He is the founder of several spiritual movements, including Contemplative Fire, a dispersed community which seeks to live the mystery of life in Christ by invitation into the spacious stillness of contemplative prayer and by the transforming encounter with the fire of God's Spirit, which equips us for compassionate living. He is also the founder of the Quiet Garden Movement, a worldwide network of over 300 gardens, which nurtures access to outdoor space for prayer and reflection in a variety of settings, such as private homes, churches, retreat centers, schools, and hospitals. Quiet Garden Movement also creates opportunities for people to experience silence, restfulness, and contemplative practice with regular quiet days and retreats offered in many of the quiet gardens. And Philip's most recent initiative is the Hidden Houses of Prayer, an invisible network of people drawn to the practice of contemplative, creative, and intercessory prayer in their own homes. According to his bio on the Quiet Gardens website, Philip delights in the radical presence of God in community, in nature, on hillside and by seashore. He rejoices in improvisational chant and harmony, syncopation and stillness. And last of all, I should mention that in 2016, Philip was diagnosed with Parkinson's. Philip, welcome to Encountering Silence. Thank you, Carl. So we love to begin our conversations uh, by asking our conversation partners to share a little bit about their relationship with silence. Uh, how is silence a part of your life, Philip? Well, silence is a sort of weaving. It's like a tapestry or a pattern of presence. And it's, it recalls me. But it's, not like a, it's not like a block. It's more like a river, a flow, a patterning. My first experience, remembered experience of silence, was lying in my back garden in Wales, in Cardiff, where I was born. And something took me outside in the dark and lay on my back on the lawn. And there were myriads of stars. I mean, other people have had this similar experience, but it was suddenly a breakthrough. I was about 12 or 13, I think, at that time. 
And it was a combination of the darkness and the light of the stars and the extraordinary patterning in the stillness, which made a profound impact on this little 12-year-old. And that's continued, really. So silence is, for me, a resource, an aperture, a journey, a patterning, all sorts of ways of thinking about it. Philip, I really appreciate the way you talk about silence, the way you talk about it as this movement. I love that you said it's not a block. Uh, There's something really beautiful um, and free about the language that you use when you talk about silence. Um, And and how would you reflect about silence um, as a part of your life now and your work now? Um, Obviously, Quiet Gardens has um, a silence about it that's a, a movement and in the natural world. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yes. My daily practice, basically, it's a, I work with the idea of a both and. So I'm neither truly, I'm not a, a purist in the sense that I will spend my whole life in silence. So there'll be times for silence and a time for words. I'm Where we live is very close to Brighton, in the south coast of England, and just one block, two blocks from my house, there are this, what, the, what are called the South Downs. And uh, it's just one of the most beautiful undulating hills of places. And I go walk running up there because I'm meant to be getting plenty of exercise. And the sound of the skylarks is uh, woven against the background of this stillness. And sometimes the stillness, I find, is so evocative, the stillness becomes the call. Sometimes the, the, the hills are blown and the wind is strong, and sometimes there is no wind and the, the silence is exquisite. And I also do, we have a, a back balcony on our little house, and that overlooks the village of Saltteen. And so I've been very early in the morning um, going out there on the balcony in the dark, overlooking the village and doing body prayer because I'm a great believer that we're in an incarnational tradition and body prayer is for me in stillness a wonderful way of incarnating in the day, as it were. So at four o'clock or five o'clock in the morning, sometimes uh, out there on the balcony, and then that's complemented by the run later on in the day. And there's something about there's something about wordlessness and word, and there's something about movement and pause. So on my run walk, I will pause and I will move. And I will pause and I will move. I will run and I will walk and I will stop. So this integration of pausing, moving, being still, singing, because the stillness calls forth, calls forth song, I find, song as well as silence. And so th- this is what I mean by the both ends. It seems the body is involved, the soul is involved. And then also what is involved is the, well, the great tradition makes this distinction between the cataphatic and the apophatic. In other words, the cataphatic is when I can say, oh, here we are, this is it. This is wonderful. I can come out with various affirmations about the nature of God, the nature of reality. And that's the, the way of affirming. 
And a way of negating is the apophatic way, which then says, but I know nothing. I know absolutely nothing. I once went to a, a nun, a hermit nun in the north of England, many, many, many years ago when I was in a Russian Orthodox monastery for a year. And I went to see this small hermitage with two sisters in it, Sister Thecla and Mother Maria. And I asked Mother Maria, how do you pray? And I was expecting some sort of profound answer with many words and many encouragements. And in fact, I, had, I received a profound answer, but she said, Philip, when I pray, I pray like this. And she lay full length out on the floor with arms opened in a cross. And she said, I know I am nothing. And that apophatic path comes on the mountainside or on the seashore too, when I know that there is something to be affirmed, many, many things to be affirmed, but there's also sitting in the mystery or running in the mystery of stillness and silence. Mm. That's that's wonderful too, because I, I come from an academic background and teach at university and to hear words like apophatic and cataphatic used, and yet you are bringing it down to earth. You're, you're making it less conceptual and very practical and embodied. And I think it's just so accurate that my heart sings to hear you talk about that kind of in and out breath yeah. almost of the way pause and movement yeah. and words and silence. I'm really curious because now that you've answered that way, I have about a billion questions about Russian Orthodox and monasteries and all sorts of things. But <laughs> but I think really what I want to do is I want to follow up with Cassidy's initial question is, how did this, this Quiet Gardens, this project that you're involved in, how did this, you know, start? What's the story of Quiet Gardens and, and what is it? Uh-huh. Good question. Well, in 1992, I went on a sabbatical. I was then um, working in England as a priest, uh, and I had a three-month sabbatical. And so I visited various spirituality centers in America and India, went to see B. Griffiths, interviewed him. I went to see just I had a prof- profound time. Uh, came back to England in 92 and sat in our back garden with my wife Jill uh, and we sat in stillness in the sunshine in May and somehow a penny dropped and I thought well I've had this wonderful few months visiting these centers they were all far away and perhaps some of them some retreat houses are expensive to be in and I thought well if I'm trying to follow Jesus he is my teacher and he clearly says to his disciples on a number of occasions in different ways, come with, me, come with me to a quiet place and get some rest. And in my back garden that day, I thought, well, if, I am, if he's my teacher and I'm supposed to be doing what he says, then what is the contemporary equivalent of come with me to a quiet place and get some rest? And we were in this garden, and I thought, well, maybe if somebody lent us a garden, because our garden was not, not appropriate, Maybe somebody lent us a garden, and in that garden we could be still and be attentive to the teachings of the teacher. Mm. So I named this vision 
And my mother, when I had been about 14, I went down to, to uh, downstairs after the night, said to my father, Dad, I know what I've got to be. And he said, well, what, Philip? I think I've got to be a poet. And he said, well, have you written any poetry? And I said, well, no, I haven't. Oh, well, perhaps begin. <laughs> so, I wrote a, <laughs> so I wrote a poem, and my mother, who was not too given to affirmations, said of one line in that poem, what a wonderful line of poetry, Philip. Mm. And my heart swell, swelled, uh, and that line of poetry was a falling flower in the quiet garden. Mm. And the penny dropped in my back garden. I thought, this is what we need. We need a quiet garden, someone to lend us a quiet garden. So I share this vision of quiet gardens being coming into being in different parts of the country and perhaps even beyond as places of hospitality and prayer, local and low cost. I shared this with some of my students because I was then teaching in the Diocese of Oxford in lay training and clergy training. Um, and a few weeks later, somebody phoned me up saying, Philip, I'm, you must meet this lady because she has, she with her husband has bought this house and they, they know that some Christian organization needs to use the wing of the house because it was a, quite a gracious house. So I went over to see this lady called Noreen Cooper, uh, and she showed me her house and the wing. She said, you know, we bought this house knowing that some Christian group needs to work here and be here. And I shared the vision of the quiet garden. She had been a rally driver. And she says, I know nothing about contemplative prayer, but what you say sounds attractive. And if it can be here on offer for other people, then do. And she lived a mm -hmm. stone's throw from where Thomas Gray wrote his elegy written in a country churchyard, one oh, of England's wow. fine poems. Yeah. So she had a wing and I had a prayer, and the whole thing went on from there. <laughs> wow. And so, wow. And so, and so that vision of the choir garden, then we, we began, we established the, the pilot, and then it's wonderfully seeded itself in different parts of the world. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in the silence. Philip, um, well, and to quote you, uh, you said earlier, sometimes the stillness is so evocative, the stillness becomes the call. And I, I think yeah. you just so beautifully described that in that story. Um, and I wonder what makes a quiet garden a quiet garden? Uh, I wonder if there's certain decibel levels or other benchmarks. I know you mentioned hospitality, prayer, local, low cost, uh, which are beautifully important things. And I wonder if there's any other kind of requirement in how you determine and name particular gardens, quiet gardens. Yes, the, 
a quiet garden, if somebody offers their space, it need, it need not be big. It can be very small. It need not be beautifully groomed as a garden. It can be a bit chaotic. But the important point is that for a few hours every now and again, the place is, is consecrated space or space used for the love of God and the provision of stillness. Um, so the per you're, normally speaking, it is... Because, as I said, the the vision came from my own tradition. And so it is a Christian ministry open to all from whatever faith or path. But if there is teaching or input, then there is teaching from the, from the Jesus way of prayer and contemplative praxis. Um, the quiet, sometimes, as you know, it's not always sunny in England. Um, sometimes it rains. And so people say, well, do you... You go out and just get wet and look holy. Um, in, <laughs> in fact, uh, the important thing is that there there is a garden space. But even there's somebody who runs a quiet garden in a slum in in Nairobi, in Kenya, uh, and he came over to England some years ago, and we he showed us this some pictures of his quiet garden, and they were African huts. Um, in this slum, and we said, where is the garden? And he said, oh, the garden is in the heart. Hmm. So for him, it was a, it was a very minimalist mm -hmm. garden because they, on one afternoon a week for two hours, they would have a quiet garden in this African hut. On other times, it was a dispensary, a small classroom, and so it became a quiet garden. Generally speaking, however, quiet gardens are quiet for most of the time, although often there is some input. If It's a bit like having a retreat day in somebody's private home. Hmm. There's, a, a, there's a beginning, some input about how to pray or creativity and prayer. Then there's some stillness. And if the weather is clement enough, people go outside. I'm, I'm, we, we've tried to nurture people to take the risk because some people will say, well, in the winter it's no good you know, this is not a good time for a quiet garden, surely. And I say, well, it's not always raining in the winter. Sometimes there are beautiful, crisp days. It's a matter of finding the resource of quiet, the quiet well, I suppose. Mm. There needs to be times of stillness and times of garden, but there will be also times of sharing locally mm. and times in the house. And as I say, it's not the beauty of place that is important. It's the saying, this is set aside for this day to be where people gather and to deepen their life with God. Philip, looking not only at the quiet garden movement, I think we could sit and talk about that all day, but I'm also interested in your other two initiatives, the Hidden Houses of Prayer and Contemplative Fire. I mean, <clears throat> it... It seems to me that, that contemplation and contemplative forms of spirituality have been very meaningful in your ministry. And so I'm curious as to um, if you could just speak briefly about kind of this relationship between the garden, kind of the outdoor space, the cultivated space, uh, 
you know, because we can get into garden and wilderness. This is something we've talked about a lot on the podcast has been the relationship between silence and wilderness. But I think this is the first time we've looked at the relationship between silence and cultivated spaces. Mm. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that. But then also kind of these, these other associations, the contemplative fire and hidden houses of prayer. Maybe if you could just briefly explain what, what each of those ministries are. And then I'm just curious as to what you see as kind of like the golden thread that holds each one of these initiatives together. Just touching on the cultivated garden, there was a, we went to um, Vancouver Island, and there was a quiet garden there, and I visited and met the owner of the house, a lovely man, and his lovely garden. And he he said on the very first quiet garden, he'd been taking 15 years to develop his garden, and then heard about quiet garden, opened it up, uh, and he allowed himself time to be with the group even though he was the host. And he sat in front of a tree that he had planted 15 years previously, and he sat on a bench looking at this tree, and tears rolled down his, down his cheeks. Mm. And he thought, I haven't stopped. I've been designing this garden, building it up, and I haven't stopped, and this is the first time I've stopped. So even, even though we're, we love gardens and we cultivate them, sometimes we're into an activism. The delight was in contemplative fire was that the Church of England and its bishops in about 2003 and 2004, the bench of bishops amazingly in England encouraged people who had a vision for new ways of being church or emergent models of Christian community to explore those with affirmation from the Church of England. So I, being a clergyman then in the Oxford Diocese, thought, wow, this is amazing. There's a call here not simply to provide retreat time, because I was doing that and other people are doing that, and that's wonderful, but this was now a call to become a way of being church, the body of Christ. And that was a, a radical call by the bishops, uh, and I'd heard heard the call and my something inwardly responded positively thinking well this this would then complement quiet garden quiet garden is, is primarily a retreat ministry and i'd i knew i wanted to bring bridge together the contemplative and the active and so for a while we we pondered and the oxford diocese where i was then working drew together this thing called cutting edge ministries just at the same time as the Church of England launched its fresh expressions of church. So all of these led to contemplative fire becoming a way of being Christian community, which was Eucharistic, uh, contemplative deeply, and the fire of the Holy Spirit seemed to be so important um, to strengthen people's creativity in God. So it wasn't simply a matter of handing down the tradition, but as the Russian Orthodox would talk about tradition being essentially dynamic and not static, so there was a dynamism in the fire of the Spirit and the emergence of new models of being church. And so contemplative fire, we established a rhythm of life, and so it became a, a sort of new and reflective community emerging out of the call to be 
Christian community with a 21st century steer, whilst being integral, whilst finding its sort of integral cohesion with the great tradition. So there's always this paradox between the old and the new and the inherited and the free-flowing. And then Hidden Houses of Prayer came about as the third sister, if you like, of these three. As from the very beginning of the Quiet Garden Movement, there were some people who came and saying, I just need a deep solitude. Even if it's only for a few hours, I need some space just to be really quite hidden. And that responded to my own heart when I was about 24 I spent a, Russian, I spent a year in a Russian Orthodox hermitage, St. Elias Monastery in Wales. We started off in Devon and then moved to mid-Wales. And I had a powerful call to be exploring solitude. And I do believe that silence and solitude are precursors to service. So they can be seeming to be escapist, but in fact a true silence and a true solitude leads to a full out-expression out of care and love. So the mm -hmm. call to love and heal is integrally, integrally bound up with the call to be hidden and alone. And so Hidden Houses of Prayer came about as a little network of people who were drawn to sense in my solitude, in my house, in my flat, wherever people live, that is a place of prayer, just as the church is a prayer, place of prayer for community. So the home can be a hermit cell. And many people think in the wee hours of the night, I'll ask a group, a group if a group's gathered of 20 people or 60 people, I'll often ask, put up your hands if, if you, you know, wake up in the middle of the night and need to go to the loo or whatever. And mo many, many people over the age of 35 will put up their hands somewhat grudgingly. And then I say, well, it just may be that in, the, in those wee hours you are being called to pray mm. momentarily for a few seconds or slightly longer. And many years ago when I was in the monastery, I was sent by the abbot to mid-Wales to discern about a new place where the hermitage of St. Elias should find its home. And I stayed overnight with a man in mid-Wales and came down for breakfast. This was in 1973. Came down for breakfast, and he said, how have you slept, Brother Philip, as I then was? And I said, well, I slept fine, thank you, and how about you? And he said, I slept really badly, and sometimes I have really bad nights, and I'm despairing. And in fact, I wanted to do away with myself. And I was quite shocked. And, and, but I was also questioning as to what happened to take him out of that pit. And I said, well, how did you survive? And he said, well, somewhere there is a nun praying. And that phrase, somewhere there is a nun praying, stayed with me from 1973 right the way through for about 30 years and finally came out in 2010 mm. as a way of thinking, well, there was a time 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago when many, many monks and nuns would be praying at night and would be holding the wounded world in their solitude. But the number of sisters and brothers 
uh, is diminishing at the moment. I hope there'll be a, a refreshing of the spirits for the monastic movement. But the numbers of people who are praying formally at night in the night hours and the vigils is decreasing. But I thought, well, surely God is not going to let his people go. Maybe we're, we're being called into a new generation of prayers, not only at night in a day, but holding in contemplative intercession the needs of the world. And so that's really the core of Hidden Houses of Prayer, responding to that man who survived because he didn't know the nun, the nun didn't know him, but somehow in this mystery of praying in dark places, he was a man of hope because of that. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful story. Philip, I'm really inspired by this kind of almost trinity you, you describe here with this... Um, contemplative fire, quiet gardens, and hidden houses of prayer. And on the podcast recently, we talked a little bit about ecological justice, and I'm also quite inspired by some of the really natural aspects that you are drawing from um, gardens, fire, and these kinds of things. And I wonder if, if there's an inspiration there for deeper connectivity to the land and for deeper unity and, and care for creation from these things, and I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that. Yes, there is a profound link between care of the earth and the compassion for the earth and the, and the connection between earth, soil. Now, I'm, I wouldn't say that everybody who comes to a quiet garden the, the, is automatically versed in care for the earth and care for climate. But I think there is a now, as the climate change agenda becomes stronger, there will be, just as I, I believe there's a bridge between contemplative and charismatic, and there is a strong connecting between that more active and the passive. Similarly, those who are simply being in nature and now being called out to express their being in a form of compassionate action to the earth and that we need to test what, what is the radical root of that. And also there will be people who are activists who are being called to step aside from their activism occasionally to replenish their soul and mm -hmm. not to burn out. Mm -hmm. so there's a real dialogue necessary, I think, between the activists and the contemplatives, because there is a, it is touching deep place for both, and there needs to be the, the dancing together of the, the withdrawal and the activity. There mm -hmm. is always this necessary paradox between withdrawal and action. And so we're not making a corporate commitment to that, but uh, encouraging individuals to be alert to, uh -huh, I hear the song or the lament of the earth. And what does that mean, hearing the lament? So if one is out running on the hills or walking on the hills or walking in a park or sitting in a garden, there is a, a deep hearing, I believe, and a deep seeing that we're being called into. And the, the activists can then replenish be replenished by the contemplative and the contemplative challenged by the activist.
This is the end of the first part of a two-part interview. The conclusion to this interview will be released in our next episode. We are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at cassidyhall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is kevinmichaeljohnson.com. Please visit the podcast's website at encounteringsilence.com, where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all too noisy world. Thank you.